well. Good morning, church. Ah, there we go. It's um, Mark Fawn is the name of our sound guy, and he's only on 50% of the time when he's here, so... Hey, good morning, church. Glad you're here. Thanks for being with us, whether in person, uh, whether at our North Avenue campus or watching online. We're in our series together, and we're looking at uh, the letters that uh, Jesus Christ sent to the seven churches in Asia, and these are the letters that are written in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. And we're actually in our fifth letter this morning, so let's jump right into that text. It's in Revelation chapter 3, and we're in our series together, what Jesus has to say to the church, and of course, you can cross out the word church and say what Jesus has to say to me because we are the church. So here's our text this morning, Revelation chapter 3, beginning with verse 1. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, these are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We're in our series together looking at what God has to say to us. And I'll real quickly go back and say, when we look at what Jesus was saying to those churches at that time, they were living in this incredible time, a changing culture, Things didn't make sense. They were trying to make sense of it. And Jesus speaks to them in such a way that it gave them clarity for the times in which they live. I would say to you, these same words give us clarity for the times in which we live. It's amazing to me over and over again how Jesus Christ through his word can say something that's thousands of years old and have it be so applicable to our lives today. So that's why we're looking at this series together. The first week we looked at the church of Ephesus and we said this, what is Jesus Christ have to say to a busy church to a busy church to busy Christians he said make sure you keep first things first get back to your first love the second week was the church at Smyrna what does God have to say to a suffering church to a suffering church to a people who are going through difficult times he says this remember this look up and look forward this world is not your final home and that's helpful in any kind of given moment, isn't it? To remember this is not the end. The third week, we looked at the church at Pergamum. To a confused church, God says this, Just stick to my word. Obedience is not confusing. Um, remember that, would you? Obedience is never confusing. What's confusing is when we try to figure out how not to be obedient. When we try to figure out how to look obedient, why we aren't obedient, that gets confusing. And then we looked at, that last week, we looked at the church of Thyatira to a tolerant church. To a tolerant church, God says this, don't get comfortable with things you're supposed to be uncomfortable with. There are certain things you're supposed to be uncomfortable with, uh, uncomfortable with, and we left with this idea, truth with grace equals balance. And that's what he needs us to be, people who live in balance. And now today, we look at this letter written to the church at Sardis. And this morning, we look at these words, what Jesus has to say to a sleeping church. 
What Jesus has to say to a sleeping church, to a dopey church, to a dull church, and to sleeping Christians, and of course, you figured out already, the words are, wake up. To a sleeping church, he would say, wake up. Imagine if you would, if you're the people in the church of Sardis. You're in a day when a letter would come. It's not like it's mailed to your house. It would be hand-delivered to the head of the church. And imagine if you would, as word gets circulated, that they have a letter from John. And John is speaking for God. And everyone, assemble yourselves, for we'll read the letter together. So imagine if you would, you're part of the church, you all gather together, and the head of the church begins to read. And imagine if you would, being in that setting, you're all together and the letter is read, and here's what you hear. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive. Imagine right then the people going, oh, did you hear that? We have a reputation. John knows a reputation. Our reputation is alive. And then he says, but you're dead. And you could feel the wind go out of the room. The air is sucked out. You know, they had a reputation. They're pretty excited. And he says, but you're dead. And the air would go out of the room. And then Jesus said, it's time to wake up. Now, in light of Jesus' words of waking up, I'm going to do something a little different. So I have my phone this morning, and I'm going to set it on the alarm mode. And I'm going to set it to go off at some time during the sermon. I can tell you what. So let me set it. First of all, you want to hear my ringtone for my wife? Let me see if I can't get this right here. Here we go. Warning! Warning! It's your wife! Your wife is calling you now! Do not pick up! Because if you do, you will be talking to your wife! (laughs) Okay. Okay. I thought you'd like that. I gotta tell you. Whenever she calls me in a store, I deliberately let it just go because everyone looks. And I can't tell you how many guys go, oh, I love your ringtone. Where'd you get that? So in a little bit, in a little bit, sometime that that alarm will go off. Uh, Just kind of in the thought process of setting our alarms as Jesus gives us these words of wake up. Now, as I set a clock, let me just give you a couple of reminders. Somewhere in heaven, somewhere in eternity with God, he has set up a clock. I want to just give you a picture real quickly that, that's not the full part of the message, but a little bit of piece of here. Somewhere in eternity, God has set up a, a master clock. And the Bible is really clear that all of time, all of creation is working towards the ending of that time. Is working towards a time where the clock will go off, where the alarm goes off. The Bible's clear. Everything's moving that direction. In fact, history and scientists would all agree that everything in creation seems to be moving somewhere. They're not exactly sure. They don't have the full story like we have it, but they would even say everything seems to be moving towards something. Time isn't just ticking off or ticking away. It's actually counting down to something. Now, we as believers know what the something is. That this world is not our final home. That there is an ending. There is a time coming. There is an eternity. We know that it's all ticking and we know where it's headed. But even the world who doesn't get all that would say, you know, something's happening. It's all going somewhere. This life... I want to remind you again, is just a warm-up act for eternity. The Bible tells us that Jesus one day is coming back. He's coming back to gather the redeemed, to claim his church and his faithful followers to live in eternity forever with him. But we don't know when. We know it's coming, but we don't know when. Go back in Scripture, you'll find the disciples were sure that it was going to be while they were still alive. 
They were sure Jesus would return for them and they would never see death. So we don't exactly know when he'll return. We don't know the whole story. I got it. We don't know the timing. But something is clear, and please hear this. This is, this is free, a free part of the sermon. The other part you pay for. This part I'm throwing in for nothing. This is clear. God does not call us to try to figure out when. God does not call us to try to figure out when he's coming back like so many Christians are caught up in. It doesn't matter when. We have countless books, countless preachers, countless blogs, countless charts. I saw one pastor online, a chart that he had mapping out from the beginning of time to Jesus' return. It's this massive thing on the wall that charts it all down and has it down to, here's what to watch for when Jesus will return. Nowhere in Scripture does Jesus say, map out a plan so you'll know exactly when it will be that I'll come. He doesn't say that. No charts. It doesn't matter. If God wanted us to know when he would return, he would have told us when it will be. It's not a puzzle that he's given us. So many Christians feel like it's a puzzle that God's given us the parts of the puzzle and what he wants is for us to figure out how the parts go together. It's not a puzzle he put together. It's not a puzzle where he left the pieces. I just remind you of something. If it were a puzzle that God had put out, or put out there or if he was given these clues but didn't really want us to know, I got news for you. I don't care how good you are at putting puzzles together. If God doesn't want the puzzle put together, you're not putting it together. There's no one who's going to find the secret key and go, oh, I found it. God hid it, but I found it. Good news for you. If God hid it, you are never finding it. But what, he, it, what is clear in his word is this. I don't care, don't care about when. Just know that it's going to happen. And until it does happen, you got a job to do. And so stay at it. You see, all the scripture that God gives to us about his return, about the fact that he is coming back and about when he'll come back and all of those things is not to get you to go to try to figure out when. It's to remind you that you better be busy. You better be busy because he's coming back. And and the time is coming and you don't know when. So you don't want to be caught sitting around doing nothing. He gave us a job to do until he returns. I've shared this story before. Years ago, my mom and dad retired. Both worked at IBM in Endicott, New York. They retired. They were so ecstatic. They moved to Florida. Uh, shortly after they moved, we made our first visit. And they were just getting new and getting moved in, all those kind of things. A couple years later, we back to visit again. And I sat there talking with them. And so they had a new church home that they're in. They've been in you know, they, were, they were active in my home church. I mean, they were like the pastor and pastor's wife, though they weren't. But we were there every single moment the church was open. They were so active. We're down there, we're having dinner one night, and I said, so tell me about your church. And they told me all about their new church. I said, and so what are you, <clears throat> what are you doing in the church? You know, where, are you, where are you serving? Oh, we're not serving, any, we're not doing anything. I said, what do you mean? And the, I remember so clearly, he said, well, it's, it's the younger group generation's turn. We're, kinda, we're retired now. And I just about lost my mind. I mean, I just went crazy. And it's like my mom's going, well, well what's wrong? I said, what do you mean, what's wrong? So let me get this right. When you had no time in your life, you poured yourself into your family and your church and serving God, and now that you have time, you're stepping out and you're doing nothing? I mean, I just went nuts. I'm going, I'm coming back next year, and you better be serving in the church somewhere. I'm like, okay, we'll serve, we'll serve, we'll serve, we'll serve. And what I found out about it is they jumped in and they served in the local church. And they loved every minute of it. Because here's something else happens. When you step out of serving God and let someone else do it, you lose the vitality you have in your walk with God. And so I would say to you, you've got a job to do. Step in. 
And if you've ever thought that there's a need in the church for people to serve and you've thought to yourself, I'll let someone else do it, shame on you. Shame on you, get in the game. Jesus writes to this church and he writes to you and me because he wants us to come to life. It's time to wake up. You ever felt in your life you have those moments where you said, you know, I'd like to have that sense of joy in the Lord again. I'd like to have that sense of joy. I'd like to have that sense of excitement. I'd like to have that sense of energy in my walk with God. I want to have again that, that sense of walking with Jesus as such an exciting thing. And you know, some of you are there right now. Some of you here, some of you watching online are there right now. Where you open the Bible, it seems like a boring book. Where you look at your life and, and, you, and you look at people worshiping and you think, I, I want to worship like them because they, look at, they raise their hands like they really mean it. And I think they do, but I don't have that inside of me. Why, why can't I be like that? How do I get there? Well, thank you for asking. Let me talk to you about that this morning. Because Jesus actually has answers to the question as to how do you wake up your faith? He has answers for how it is that we restir all of that up again. I want to give you three prayers. I want to give you three prayers. I want to challenge you to pray in your life regularly if you would have your walk with God energized and restored and put, put once again on fire. Here's the first prayer. The first prayer is this, Lord, show me what's missing in my life. The first prayer is, Lord, show me what's missing in my life. Now, each of the letters so far that we have read, each of the letters start with an introduction to Jesus. Every one of the letters that are written gives a bit of an explanation, a bit of an introduction to the person writing the letter, to the person sending the letter, and they describe Jesus. It's an introduction to, to, an introduction to his message. Now, in those introductions, what's interesting, each introduction gives a little bit of a sketch a little bit of a picture of how Jesus meets our every need. You might recall last week we said this. The introduction said that the one who is sending this letter is the one who has feet like bronze, like a burnished bronze and has uh, eyes like fire. And we said it means that he's the God that is firmly planted and sees right through you. But what's it say this week in our text? It says, these are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. There's this week's introduction. Now, I'll give you a quick, kind of quick lesson here, what that means without having, having the time to go back. But if we go back in Revelation chapter 3, verse 1, I mean, the, the first chapter of, of Revelation, we find that in that first chapter, they describe, John describes for us that the spirits of God are a symbol of the multifaceted work of God's spirit working in our lives. And so when he says, I, I, I write to you the, uh, from the, those, the one who gives us the words of the seven spirits of God, he's talking about this multifaceted work of the Holy Spirit. And then it also says, and he, and he holds the seven stars. The stars were a symbol of the messengers of God. Now, admittedly, we're not exactly sure who, who these messengers are. We understand the concept of the Spirit of God and, and in, the, in the multiple ways the Spirit of God works. We're not sure about who these messengers are. Some people think that this means that these angels of these churches were literally the angels of the church. Like every church has its own angel assigned to it. Maybe. Other people think that these angels that's referring to here were actually the pastors of these churches, the spiritual leaders of the churches, and that are overseeing the church. Well, that might be it as well. 
And I, and I kind of like that, that these, these pastors are considered angels. I like that because that would make me angelic. I like that. I like, the, I like that interpretation. I could, I could lean into that one. So that might be it as well. But here's the statement. It really doesn't matter. And I want to remind you that when you read Revelation, don't do what so many Christians want to do. And they want to explain every detail of it. And it's not going to be explained. Because it's given to us in pictures sometimes that we may not fully get. I think the people of that day understood it better than perhaps we will. But don't go down that road. But here's what is important. Jesus is saying this. I know what you need and I know what's missing. And by my spirit, if you'll listen to me, I'll show you what's missing. Here's the important part of that introduction. Here's the key. He says this, if you listen to God speaking to you through his spirit, you'll know exactly what it is to be working on. It's that simple. That in all through history, God sends into our lives messengers. Sometimes it's the pastor. Sometimes it's a Christian friend. Sometimes it's a sermon that you've heard. Sometimes it's a radio voice. Sometimes it's someone else speaking into your life. But he said all through your life, God's spirit will speak to you and he'll use different messengers. And the truth and the the very basic key is this. If you listen to God's spirit when he speaks to you, you'll know what's missing. And now you'll know how to wake up. Now here's the deal with our lives. Our lives are full of these gaps. And I'll explain what that means. You see, the gap is the difference between when everyone else thinks we are and who we really are. The gap is who everyone else sees and who we really are inside. So the the key thing is, is that understanding in our lives, we have these gaps between what we present and who we really are. Now, the people who think that you, what you are, that's your reputation. What people see of you and they see an imp- and have an impression of you, that's your, reputa- your reputation. What you are inside is your character. And the truth of it is that quite often we have gaps between how we present ourselves and who we really are. We have gaps between our reputation and gaps between our character. So what's it say in verse, in, uh, verse 1? These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Jesus knows their reputation. He knows what you look like. He knows how you present, but he also knows your character. And that's what he's saying to them. Listen, you've got this reputation and it looks good. However, you're dead. He knows what's missing. He knows what's missing between the two. He understands the gap. I see your deeds. I know your reputation. But there's a gap there and something's missing. Everyone else will look at you and say, wow. But I look at you and say, oh no. There's something else missing. The people who looked at the church of Sardis would probably have looked at the church and said to themselves, what a nice group of people. What a nice looking church, respectable group. You know, I like this group. They're not dangerous. They're not desirable. They're just, they're just right there. I, I like them. They're a nice group of people. What a wonderful reputation they have. They have no real energy, but they have a wonderful reputation. They really don't, really don't make any demands on your life. And, and yet they're there and they're constant. Man, it's pretty nice. It could be said of the church of Sardis, this saying, which I, I don't know where it came from. I, I read it some time ago. They were a mild-mannered people meeting in a mild-mannered way, striving to be more mild-mannered. That was the church of Sardis. And to that church, Jesus says, man, you got to wake up. Now, what he says here is he says, and I appreciate the fact that Jesus is direct. 
I have to be honest with you, I, I, sometimes I don't like it, but if I boil it down, I like the fact that Jesus is really, really blunt. As opposed to how it might go today, something like this today. Hey, I see your deeds and they're really good, man. You are really, you've got a great reputation, a wonderful reputation. And you know, I want to give you just a couple of things you can tweak. You got a really good reputation, but let me give you just a couple of things you can work on. And they're not major things, I mean, a couple of tweaks here and there. And if you can tweak them a little bit, yeah, even better. I like the fact that Jesus says, hey, you look really good, but you're not, you're dead. I kind of like that. It gets right to the heart of the issue and makes you say, okay, what is it? Jesus needs them to understand that they're missing out, that they're missing it. They need to see in themselves that something is missing. So Jesus says, you have a reputation and that's nice, but it's fake. It's not real. You need to see what's missing before you can change anything. Let's real quickly talk about some of the gaps in our lives. Let me just give you some examples of some of the gaps that we face in our lives. Uh, the, the gap between the reality of who we are and the reality of our character. Those two different things. One of the gaps would be what we say versus what we do. I'll give you some examples. I, I say, I love the Lord. I got a lot of Christians that say, man, I just love him. But do I really? Does my life reflect a love for God? Would the people around you say, you know, something about them. They love God. You know, I mean, I don't really get it. I don't understand them, but they really seem to love God. People say, I love Jesus, but their lives don't look very loving. Pretty hard to claim that I love Jesus when your life doesn't look loving in return. Because if you love him, then you like to be like him. I was asked to preach a number of years ago at a church by our district superintendent. And so I went and I went that Sunday and I preached. I couldn't wait to call him afterward. I called him on the phone. I said, Tom, I got to tell you, I have never been in such a joyless church. I've never been in such a joyless church. I said, you know, I'm preaching and it's just like it look, they look angry. And I said, what did, what, did I do something? I mean, and he, he stops and he goes, ah, oh, that makes me feel good to know it's not just me. And then he said, and then it makes me feel bad because now what do we do? But he said, I thought it was me. That's why I wanted you to go. That's why I didn't tell you ahead of time. I thought, well, thank you very much. <laughs> you know, I'm up there dying up there thinking, what have I done wrong? You know, we, we, we claim I love Jesus, but something's missing in the walk, in the life. Or how about this statement? I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. Really? You do know that the root word of disciple is discipline. And so it would seem to make sense. If anyone says, I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ, it would seem to me to make sense that then their life would have some of the disciplines of Jesus Christ. Have some of the disciplines that go with being a disciple. You know, disciple of prayer, the disciple of reading, the discipline of, of, of prayer, the discipline of reading the Bible, the discipline of giving, the discipline of belonging in community, the discipline of love, the discipline of forgiveness. One, uh, one Christian writer wrote these words. I thought it just so caught my attention. Many Christians are really Christaholics. They're not really disciples at all. They're Christaholics. They just like the fix they get, but they're not disciples at all. So there's a couple of illustrations, if you will, of that gap between who we say and what we actually do. And so that first prayer is this, Lord, show me what's missing. And if you ask him, he'll show you. Anytime you say to the Lord, you know, I just, if I'm missing something, you show me. Don't you worry, it'll show up. Let me give you the second prayer. If you'd like to wake up in your spiritual walk with God. The second prayer is, Lord, please help me fix what's missing. I mean, you could have seen that one coming probably, right? 
Lord, what's missing? And the next prayer is, Lord, help me fix what's missing. Help me to close these gaps. Look at verse 2 and 3 together. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what time I will come to you. So, how do we close these gaps in our lives? How do we close the gaps between, you know, what we portray and who we really are? Well, he actually gives us a couple of steps here. So, let me kind of pull those out for you a little bit. The first thing he says, if you want to close the gaps, if you want to fix what's missing, the first thing is wake up. The first thing is sound the alarm. The first thing is get some direction. Get up and get going. Live like you mean it. Live like it matters. Now, let me give you some background here real quickly. So, the church at Sardis in many ways reflects the city that it was in. In many, many ways, they look very much the same. So, understand something about the city of Sardis. The city of Sardis was built on a very high plateau, about 1,500 feet up above the, the, the plain below it. About 1,500 feet up on this big plateau. And what's quite interesting, it's surrounded by rock. I mean, literally, it's a rock plateau. And there was only one easy, good way up to it, a pretty narrow passageway. Through the rocks and, and on their way up and, and, and steep rocks at every side of this pathway. So that's where they built the city. And it was actually quite ingenious. Because the bottom line is, it, you, just a couple of guys could completely guard the city. Just a couple of soldiers could hold off a whole army for forever or at least time to summon the troops to come and help because there's only one way in. So they had this real sense of, of safety because they were actually quite safe. But what's interesting, if you go back and read the history of the city of Sardis, two different times it was completely overtaken by the enemy. It fell to the enemy. You know how? Because what happened is that the enemy would send troops, scouts, and would just sit there and watch. And they would measure and they'd watch things. And they looked at the find and would see that the only place they guarded was the only place that you could walk up. They didn't guard any of the places where you could climb up. Because you see, in their thought process, they would say, well, who's going to climb up? Because if you climb up, you're going to be exposed and we'll see you and we'll get you. So they felt safe. Two times Sardis fell. And both times, the army went to mountaineer, the enemy armies went to mountaineering school. They went and they practiced. And then one night, in the middle of the night, they came in force and they climbed. They climbed the cliffs. And once they got to the top, there's no one there. Everyone's asleep. So they went down, killed the soldiers that were watching the, the pathway in, let everybody else in, and took the city. And so twice this happened because they had this false sense of safety and they'd fallen asleep. This is a great example of what spiritual arrogance in our lives can do, overconfidence in our lives. It makes us blind and, and open to attack. We think that we're safe because I'm untouchable. I really got this part of my life down pat. I'm not going to fall there. And that's where we get most susceptible. We're untouchable, invincible. Interesting to notice about this church. Now catch this. This is pretty critical of understanding the whole thing, the whole message. Interesting notes about this church. This church doesn't have any of the problems that the other churches had. 
If you heard the description, they had no false teachers going on. They had no false teaching going on. They were not suffering persecution. They were not, their church was not located next to Satan's throne. And they were not filled with immorality. They were not learning the deep secrets of Satan. They had none of the things that the rest of them had. However, this is the most stern condemnation we have from Jesus to a church. Think about that. This church doesn't have rampant immorality going on. This church doesn't have sex in the church going on. People sleeping with each other. This church is not uh, worshiping other idols and eating food, uh, sacrificed idols. This church has none of that. No heresy in the church. None of that. And yet this church gets the strongest condemnation by Jesus. Why is that? Because they became complacent. Because they became complacent. They had a big yawn. Everything was easy. And they became, they became sleepy and dopey and complacent in their faith. Now, if you don't think that this church, in, that the church in America looks a little like the church in Sardis, then you are really missing the point. And if you don't think that this church looks a little bit like the church in Sardis, you're really missing the point. I mean, we live in a world today, folks, we live in a world where we have sound teaching. We have unequaled access to God's word. Everyone has a Bible, multiple Bibles on phones and on paper, whatever it might be. We have no persecution. We literally have no persecution. We are not crippled by false teachers. And to say yes to following Jesus in our culture today costs you next to nothing to say yes to follow Jesus. And yet, if you do a quick study and look at the, uh, the statistics, you'll find that the church here in America, our church in America, is the least powerful, the most lacking in influence, the least redeeming church anywhere else in the world. And yet, we've got it all at our fingertips. And we're the least powerful. In 1911... In 1911, the first Protestant missionary to go into Vietnam was a Christian and Missionary Alliance missionary. We just had our moment for missions thing. The first missionary, first Protestant missionary in Vietnam was a, name by the, a guy named Robert Jaffrey, an Alliance missionary. When South Vietnam fell to the communists, so the first Protestant missionary in 1911, when South Vietnam fell to the communists in 1975, it was estimated there were approximately 150,000 Christians in Vietnam, both South and North Vietnam. 150,000. That's not a huge growth rate from 1911 until 1975. So then persecution comes and the communists take over. And today it's believed that in the, the number of Christians in Vietnam today is well over 1.6 to 1.8 million. Best we can tell. But we don't have a real way to account for all the house churches that are happening all through the country in the mountains. Here is a church that had its most massive growth. Think about that. 1975, 150,000. And now today, 1.6 to 1.8 million believers. We really ought to be ashamed, right? I mean, you know, it takes hundreds... Time's up. I'm still preaching. (laughs) But when Jesus said, you don't wake up, I'm coming like a thief in the night. There it is, right there. 
Now, just so you know, I had no idea when it was going to go off. I just set a time and pushed it. And so you were surprised like I was. But that's the picture Jesus needs us to see. We got this job to do and we're sitting around like, ah, it doesn't matter. It matters because there's a clock that is ticking. You see, friends, this church of ours here in Essex, this church in North America, it takes hundreds of thousands of us to win one person to Jesus. And it's not because the world doesn't care. It's not because they're not hungry. It's because we're just content to sit in church. We're not telling the story. So the first thing he says is you want to wait. If you want to fix what's missing, first thing, wake up. Second thing he would say is strengthen what remains. Let me touch on this real quick because there's such a great truth here. Let me explain this. This is such an exciting, such exciting thing and such great advice. He says this. He says, first wake up. And then he says, second thing, strengthen what remains. If you want to wake up your spiritual life, if you want to wake up a relationship, if you want to wake up a marriage, you strengthen what remains and we do the exact opposite. Here's what we do. So you're in a marriage that's bad and, it's just, and, you, and you, you sit there and you mourn because of what you've lost. You, you know, it's not like it, was, it used to be. It's not like it should be. And you mourn the things you don't have anymore. And what he says here is this. You know, what's gone is gone. So stop mourning about that which is already dead and grab hold of that which remains. Jesus says, don't worry about trying to bring back things that are dead and gone. Strengthen what remains. My dad loved weeping willow trees. I don't know why, he just did. And he planted three weeping willow trees on our property. And it wasn't a very big property and weeping willow trees to get to be very big. And so we had three of them. One of them, when it was uh, fairly young still, got blown over in the wind because they don't have very deep roots, you know. They got blown over in the wind. It's like a big sail out there. Blown over, but not completely. He loved that tree. So he had a tree guy come. You know, he, kinda, he, he thought it would kind of nurse back and it wasn't looking very good. And had a tree guy come and say, he said, well, how can we save it? Maybe we could even get a, 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 a crane or something, you know, and, and pull it back upright and restake it. The guy looked at him and just said point blank, it's dead. Your tree's dead. He said, cut it down. He said, before you do, on the underside, there's a bunch of green, green branches still. He goes, cut off those branches, put them in a trash can full of water. He goes, and if you, maybe he knows about willow trees, but if you take branches and cut them off, stick them in a trash can of water, they're going to sprout roots. He said, cut off those branches, put them in a trash can full of water, they're going to sprout roots. Pull that tree out, get rid of it, and then go take some of those things that sprout roots and plant them. You have a brand new tree. I laughed at that because since from that point on, my dad gave anyone who wanted willow trees because we always had a trash can full of willow tree branches with roots just because he knew he could do it. And so we did it. We got rid of the tree. And we put the new one in. Does that make sense, right? You see, you stop trying to resurrect that which is gone, but you build and you strengthen what's there. And that's the picture that he gives, the picture he wants us to see. The spiritual things that you, you mourn about, don't try to bring them back, but look at what remains. Let me give you two quick examples. A marriage. You have a marriage you want to bring back to vitality. Well, you don't go and grieve about that which you don't have. You say, well, what do we have still? And you pour all your energy into that thing you still have. You build on what remains. Let's talk about your spiritual life. It feels like maybe your relationship with God has maybe slipped and maybe you're a little sleepy, they're dopey. 
So instead of looking back and mourning what you've lost in your walk with God, ask yourself the question, well, what is it that still gets you a little excited for God? Where is it? Maybe it's worship. Maybe it's a particular song that when you hear that song, that grabs you. Maybe it's a specific prayer. Maybe it's a specific verse of the Bible. Well, pour yourself into that song. Maybe it's an artist. Pour yourself into that artist and use that as a springboard for God to do more things in your life. Strengthen the thing that remains and watch what then God does in bringing it back to life. And then he also adds the word remember. Let's go back to the text in verse 3. It says, remember, there, remember therefore what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I'll come like a thief and you will not know at what time I will come to you. So the third thing he asks, he says, first wake up, strengthen what remains. And then he adds, remember. Remember what? Remember God's word. You've got to be reading God's word. You've got to be reading God's word. We're reading the Bible. He says, remember what you already know. Remember what you read. Remember what you're supposed to do. And then he says, just do it. Remember what you know and then do it. Let's be honest. That's going to be a horrible statement for me to make, so you'll stick with me. But let's be honest. Not one of us here needs to hear another sermon in our lives. Now stick with me. Not one of us here needs to hear another sermon in our lives because we have plenty to work on for the rest of our lives in our walk with God, right? It's not like I come in here on a Sunday, like you come in here on Sunday and say, man, I've done everything right, I've done, I, I just need something new to work on, right? I mean, we have the stuff to work on. And so he says, listen, then remember God's word and then do it. Be obedient. Be obedient. What do you know that God is telling you to do in your life that you haven't done? What do you already know that God has said, I need you to work on this, but you've refused to work on it? Well, start there. And then Jesus adds one more thing. He says, if you don't repent, back to verse 3, if you don't repent, I'm going to come like a thief in the night. And again, he says, remember therefore what you've received and heard, hold fast, repent. But if you do not wake up, I'll come like a thief and you will not know at what time that I will come to you. Here's what this means. Listen carefully. When you have areas of disobedience to God, it means that you have substituted obedience for some other false sense of security. Now make sure you think about that. When you refuse to be obedient to God, it means you have something else that you're trusting or you're relying on. Let me give you an example. God tells us that we, everything that we have comes from him. God says there's not one thing that you own, not one dollar, not one resource, not your car, not your television. There's nothing you have that hasn't come from his hand. And then he also says, I want you to give back to me a portion of what I've given to you. That's what he tells us to do. All comes from me, you give back to me. So when we're generous with God, we are acknowledging, A, that it all came from him, it's a thank you to him, but on top of that, when we're generous with God, we are also saying, here's the key piece. Here's why some of you don't give. Here's why some of you hoard your resources. Because when I don't give, when I, when I do give to God, I'm saying, I trust you to meet my need. When I don't give, I think, I don't trust you, I need me. That's why when the world... For years, we had a person in church, and they've now since passed, passed away, but would say to me, I, get, I go to my bookkeeper every year, and every year my bookkeeper doesn't understand why I give so much to the church. They would say, you'd have more if you wouldn't give it. And he goes, oh no, this is my insurance policy. He said, I give this much to God because it guarantees God's going to watch after me. 
You see, when I don't give, what I'm saying is, I'll take care of this because I trust me. So here's what God says. He says, back to our story. See, you sleep at night secure like nothing's going to happen. But if you don't repent, I'm going to take that false sense of security right out from underneath you. That's the idea of the thief coming at night. Why were they sleeping? Because they didn't expect anything would happen. And what happens after you've been asleep and someone breaks in your house and robs you? Do you sleep well the next night? How about the next night? How about the next night? The answer is no. He said, if you're not very careful, I'm going to come like a thief in the night. And this thing that you think has you secure is going to leave you a wreck. So he said, it's real simple. Just follow me. Let me give you the third prayer. And with that, we wrap up. Third prayer. Lord, I will win. Show me what's missing. Show me how to fix what's missing. And then the third prayer is, Lord, I will win. The last two verses of Revelation chapter 3. Yet you have few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me, dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This word that he uses, that those people will be the winners, that says that they will be victorious, that word. That word, victorious, or winner, or overcomer, is a, is a Greek word taken from, the, from the, the name of the goddess of victory, and we know her name, and it's Nike. We know that name because we wear Nike stuff, and we have Nike shoes, and Nike clothes, and all of those things, and that's the, the Greek word pronounced Nike. Now, some would think that this prayer, I said, the prayer I'm gonna, you're going to pray is, I will overcome. And some of you are thinking maybe this, maybe I should pray, Lord, I hope to overcome. Maybe I should pray, Lord, um, I, I hope to win. I, I'm thinking I'd like to win. I'll, I'll pray that prayer. No, your prayer is, I will win. You see, Nike Athletic Apparel, they continually paint the picture year after year, advertisement after advertisement, that if you got those clothes on and those shoes, you're a winner. That's the picture. If you've got their apparel on, you're a winner. Here's a great, here's a great advertising model for Nike. Nike, how winners dress. And that fit right? That fits right what they're trying to portray. Jesus would say, I'll show you how winners dress. He or she who overcomes, I'll show you how the overcomers dress. And he says, they dress in white. He says, I'll tell you how they dress. They put on white. And everyone in that day would have understood what he meant. For you see, they understood the games, the Olympics that just concluded. They would have understood the games of the day, how the athletes would come together. And guess what the winners wore? They wore white. The winners of the game were wrapped in white. When they walked through town, you knew, who they, you knew they were the winner because they were clothed in white. He says this, to my overcomers, I will dress you in white. Now, let me clear up one small point here and then we end. Jesus says here, I will never blot out the name of the one in the book of life. And some misinterpret that and go, oh no, does that mean he might blot it out? The fact that he says he won't, does that say that he might? 
And we have a lot of Christians who live their whole lives in fear. Will I make it? Will I make it to heaven? Am I good enough? What if he catches me on a bad day? Um, you know, what if today's the day that I sin and tomorrow's going to be the better day, but he comes today. What does that mean? Just so you know, if we look a little more carefully, the Greek word that's written there is the most powerful word that God could use to say it's not possible. It's as if Jesus is saying this. So who writes names into the book of life? Jesus does. If I write names in the book of life, who else can write names in? Nobody. It's as if he says this. Listen, if I can put them in, I'm the only one who can take them out. And that's when he says, and I'm not taking them out. He says, so for the person that overcomes, just so you know, your name's in. I want you to start praying in your life, I will win. Not I hope to. I will win. But not because of us, because of him. Look at the way each of these letters have ended. Everyone with some great promise. Uh, one says this, to the one who overcomes, they will eat from the tree of life. Uh, 2.11 says, he who overcomes will not be hurt at all by death. He who overcomes, I will give authority over the nations. He who overcomes will be, will be, uh, will be dressed as the winner, dressed in white. They who overcome, I will make a pillar in the temple of God. They who overcome, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne. Every one of these letters are written with a statement like that to the overcomers. So the ending question is this, well then who are these overcomers? Who are these victorious ones? Are they the super Christians? Are there, the, are there the ones that they just, they're the special few, the ones that don't seem to struggle with stuff and they just seem to have it together? No. You know who the overcomers are? The overcomers are you. And you. And you. And you. And you. And you. And you. You. We're it. We are the overcomers. And that's why we don't pray, oh, I hope to win. We pray, I will win. But not because of me because of his spirit working in me to a sleeping church to a complacent Christian he says it's time to wake up get to it stand please let's pray Lord Jesus this letter was written to our church this letter was written to us as Christians. This letter was written to the church of North America. Lord Jesus, we got to wake up. And I pray that you'll start that wake up with me and have that move through our entire church body that the complacency would be set aside and there'd be an energy because you're going to come. That alarm's going off. And we want to be found to be busy about your business. Dismiss us in your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.